it is a blessing to be here. Um, don't really have a whole lot to say. I was hoping to just sit and listen, um, but I am happy uh, to see what God has is doing here. Uh, Brother James and I have had some really, really um, difficult conversations in the past about uh, what is going on in his life, and he knows what has happened in mine. And and to see God still use him in this way is truly a blessing, and it encourages me. You are an encouragement to me um, because just when you don't think the Lord has work for you, he sends you people. <laughs> and you realize how important it is and how much bigger this is than either one of us, uh, uh, our dear brother uh, who has departed elder DJ Ward once told me as I walked up his steps, he says, Marlon, this is much bigger than me. And, and, and I'm going to be gone one day and other men have to carry this thing on. And uh, you start to realize when you read Paul that 2000 years ago, and it's still going, it's still going, it's still going. God is blessing. So doesn't matter how many people uh, show up. It matters that the people who show up are growing in their uh, growing in the Lord Jesus Christ, and um, I know that's happening here. Uh, I didn't have to visit to find out. I already know it, um, but I'm glad I did come. Um, my daughters, Megan and Gabby, and my wife Stephanie, um, we were away on vacation in Cincinnati, and uh, I said, on the way back home, let's let's stop by and see James, and uh, let's just support him, just so he knows. Uh, um, uh, to carry on the, this baton that you talked about, the relay, to carry it on, the truth, the truth, because as you guys know, there is so much other than the truth out there. And uh, to be in a place where the truth is preached and taught and not just preached and taught, but lived out. That's the most important thing, as Brother James knows. Yeah, we can teach it and we can sit out here all day in front of this Bible and we can, and, and that's very important. But if it's not lived out, what good is it? What good is it? That's the only way they're going to know. The only way that outside world is going to know that we belong to him is that we live this truth out. And uh, as sovereign grace people, we should be the happiest people in the world. Amen. That God would choose us and to use us to get this truth out. So, James, you carry on and uh, you keep up this truth. And, um, and, and, and if the Lord sends you 5,000, I'm really be praying for you then. <laughs> But if he only sends you five more, you preach to those five more and you give them the truth um, because that is what will sustain them in their dark hours. So thank you very much for having me. I don't really have anything else to say, brother. Uh, uh, preach Christ. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before your throne again this morning in the name of your dear and beloved Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ the shepherd of our souls. Lord, to participate in your own worship, the worship that you have always done of yourself from all eternity. And we come as those who only stand on the legs of Christ. Nothing in our hands we bring, simply to the cross, to him we cling. So Lord, we pray that you would incline your spirit towards us this morning, that he would speak to your people, that he would speak to us through your word, that he would open the hearts and minds of your people, for they are needful people. 
become as those who are burdened by many burdens and with many afflictions. And Lord, we ask for your healing waters. We ask for your power. We ask, Lord, for faith to grow, for maturity in your people. We ask, Lord, that the gospel may shine its light in your people. We pray and thank you, Lord, for your word. May you bless it for the sake of Christ. We pray in his precious name. Amen. Amen. I'm, I'm learning to give titles to sermons. And I've been stealing from Elder Morris, who always seems to have more than one title to his sermon. And he, at the end of it, will say, you choose whichever one works for you. And of course, we are back in the book of John. We have been going, we started the book of John a few weeks back. And today is the 17th of August. And it also happens to be our 17th sermon. Our 17th sermon. And I believe that the Lord has given us enough understanding that if anybody were to listen to any one of those, they would know what we are about. We are about declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of God's grace. And in the book of John, we see the gospel of God's grace. The gospel of God's grace is summarized in one thing. Believe in him whom he has sent. It's all about faith. And we are going to hear some of that this morning. I intend to get to the end of John chapter 1. I intend to get to the end of John chapter 1. And that means brace yourselves. I will finish some time today, or when the Lord comes. The title of our sermon, What Do You Seek? Or the alternative title, Come and You Will See. And these are words coming from the mouth of the Lord himself. So we are in John 1, verses 35. John 1, 35 to 51. And we intend to say as much as the Lord will allow me to say, because I don't know when I'll be back to it again. I intend to get to Romans sometime this life. And I intend to go to Galatians. Hebrews, the Corinthian letters, and of course, I intend to go to Isaiah. <laughs> Praise the Lord. So let's go to the book of John and read verses 35 to 51. Verses 35 to 51. And this is what it says. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, 
what do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who had Jesus speak, who had John speak, followed him, was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The next day he purposed to go to Galilee, into Galilee, and he found Philip, and Jesus said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. As we have looked at the book of John, the apostle is an apostle who is building a witness. He is building a witness of the person of Christ. He is an excellent thesis writer. He begins with a proposition. He proves his proposition. And then at the end of the book of John, he says he has proved his thesis. Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And to do that, he is going to bring a lot of witnesses. And one of the first witnesses that he brings is John the Baptist. And John the Baptist has told us that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he is the Lamb who takes away, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now based on John's testimony and witness, two of his disciples follow Jesus. And this creates a chain reaction of testimony and witness. Andrew, one of the two disciples who were first to follow the Lord, calls on his brother Simon to come see the Messiah. And we, when Simon comes, the Lord changes his name to Cephas. Like the first thing, you shall be called Cephas. Where do you get that authority to change my name? But the Lord has all power and authority to do whatever he pleases. So, 
Philip is found by Jesus and is commanded to follow the Lord. But it does not stop there. Philip finds Nathaniel and tells him to come see the one whom Moses and the prophets wrote about. So what do we see as we read from the beginning of the book of John? We see everyone who is gathering, coming to gather around Jesus. Everyone is pointing and moving to Jesus. Jesus, from now onwards, all the way to the end, is the center of attraction. Jesus is the end of all testimony and witness. If we miss that, we miss the gospel, we miss what John is teaching us. Jesus is the center of all witness and the center of attraction. In John 1, verses 6 and 8, verse 6 to 8, this is what we have been told by Apostle John. He has told us that there came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. So John's testimony of John the Baptist was that he came as a witness to testify about the light, that is to tell people about Christ, who is the light, the light that cannot be put out. Him who was in the beginning with God, that's what John has told us in the beginning verses. He was in the beginning with God, and it's him who created all things, and to this end, that all may believe in him. So John the Baptist was not the light, but he came to bear witness and testimony of the Messiah. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. But before the Messiah can be the Messiah, there has to be more qualifications there have to be more qualifications. That is why John begins with where he begins. He is trying to build the qualifications of the Messiah for you. The Messiah is not just an ordinary person. The Messiah, first and foremost, is the Logos. He is the Word of God, who was in the beginning with God. And as I said it's through the Logos that all things were made. And he is the light and the life of man. And this is what qualifies the word of God, who is the Logos, who took on human flesh. This is what qualifies him to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So this is not just some ordinary dude. John does not waste much time with going to Bethlehem, where the Lord was born. John does not waste time in the manger. He stretches time and goes back to the beginning of things and says, okay, this one that you're dealing with, you have to know more beyond the manger. John is not a manger apostle. So this one who came, came to a sin-darkened world 
And as expected, not all received him. And the Apostle John would tell us that because men love darkness rather than light. And what is that saying? It's saying that all men are sinners and God haters. That's what that is saying. Men love darkness rather than light is just another very clean way to say men are sinners and God haters. But there were some who received him. And these who received him were not because they were able to figure out Christ. There's something that happened to them. And it was not because they were Jews. It was not because of anything. But we're told by John in verses 12 and 13 that those who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the, of the will of man, but of God. And to these he gave the right to be called the children of God. So as I've always said, the children that God wants, he gives birth by himself. We don't give God children. So not by the will of man, not by the decision of man, not by your so-called free will. It doesn't play in this equation. So having learned these things from the Apostle John, he begins to develop and apply, as it were, he begins to apply his introduction. John is beginning to apply his introduction, and he begins to draw us to the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. People are now beginning to come to the Lord. They are coming, beginning to come to the Lord. So, in the remainder of this chapter, we see the fruit of the work of John the Baptist and the beginning of the movement of people towards Jesus. We see him directing his own disciples to their Messiah. And these are people who have been following John, and at the sight of the Messiah, John just withdraws and says, Go to him, follow him. So the scripture says in verse 35, again the next day John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. John the Baptist was standing as Jesus was walking by. That's interesting. Why is John the Baptist standing and Jesus walking by? John stood whilst Jesus was passing by, because the ministry of John the Baptist is coming to a standstill. Jesus is the one who is walking. His ministry is beginning and is going to continue in all of eternity. That's what John, I think, may have in mind for us to get from there too. And as John the Baptist stands, he directs his own converts to the one whose ministry is not only continuing, but is superior. Because remember, John has told us that there among you stands whom, whose sandals are not even worthy to untie. You can't untie the strap of the Lord's sandals. He is saying, I am below a slave, because only a disciple, as I've explained before, a disciple could do some things for free for their rabbi because the rabbis were not paid. 
so the disciples could come and offer some free things. But there's one thing that he could not do as a disciple. He could not untie the strap of the sandal. And John says, I am, when it comes to Christ, I am below the disciple. I, am, I can't even untie. That's how superior Christ is to me. And that's why I must decrease. So two of John's disciples had the witness of the Baptist and they followed Jesus. And the word followed here probably has a double meaning. They followed him in the literal sense of going after him. But also they turned their allegiance from John to Jesus that very day. So when we give witness, when we give witness of Jesus, the goal is so that people can follow Jesus and not our schemes. That people may follow Jesus. And and let's not miss the point because John the Apostle wants us to know that the purpose of reading the scriptures, especially his gospel, is so that we may see Jesus and follow him. So, as a preacher, my work is to help you see Jesus. That you may follow him. In John 5.39, Apostle John will record this for us. He says to the Jews, you search, this is the Lord Jesus Christ talking to the Jews in John 5.39. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. The study of the scriptures should not be for us to find some scheme, some way to manage our lives. The scriptures do have all those things in them. But according to Jesus, the purpose of studying the scriptures is for you to come to him because they testify of him. They are all about him, right from Genesis to Revelation. But here the first words that the disciples heard from Jesus. What do you seek? What do you seek? What do you seek? This seems to be a very simple question. This seems to be a very innocent question. But John is going to develop this letter for us in John 6. As the Jews were seeking the Lord. In John 6, we are given more light as to what we are to understand of that question. And the importance of that question. And since we are at it, we are going to go to John 6, verses 22 to 29. Because it's a very important question. John 6, 22 to 29. This is what he says. The next day, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum, Seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? 
Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. And he says in verse 27 to 29, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So what are we to learn of the question that the Lord asked at the beginning? We are to learn that this question reveals two kinds of people who come to Jesus. There are two kinds of people who come to Jesus. There are those who seek Jesus for their fleshly benefits, for the abundance of possessions, for the free food and the miracles. Even though all these things are coming in the name of Jesus, they are seeking Jesus for the wrong thing. And they are seeking Jesus for things that perish. Things that have no significance. And miss the real significance that is in Jesus. And these are the ones that fill the many prosperity gospel churches. And then there are those. The Lord makes a distinction of those who come to him not for earthly gain, but those that come to him that they may believe in him. Later in the book of John, many who were before said to believe in Jesus later rejected him because Jesus did not meet their expectations of a Messiah. Jesus did not meet what they thought the Messiah was supposed to do. In their mind, the Messiah has to come and provide free food. The Messiah has to come and deliver them from the Roman Empire. The Messiah even now has to come and pay my bills. It doesn't stop because men are the same. We are the fallen. So this is what the Lord Jesus Christ says. To believe in him signifies more than saying you believe in him. Because all these people, all these seekers were saying they believe in Jesus. According to Jesus, to believe in him is to believe what he says of you and himself. Because this is where the Jews were stumbling. They were stumbling at what Jesus was saying about them, that they were born blind. And they were stumbling at Jesus saying, before Abraham was, I am. How can you say you existed before Abraham? You're not even 50 years old. You are a baby. So the confession of faith is to believe what Christ says of you and what he says of himself. So Christ says, I am the light of the world, but you are born blind from birth. You're born blind from, from birth, which means right from when you were born, you have always lived in darkness. And the darkness here is talking about the sin. Sin here is what darkness is conveying. We have always existed in darkness. And Christ says, 
of yourself, you are an unprofitable servant. Uh-oh, that will make people mad. Christ says you are an unprofitable servant. Okay? You are just doing what the master has told you to do. And of himself, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know <laughs> and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. And Christ says to the Samaritan woman, You have had husbands too many. You need to get some water. You need to get you some water that will quench this thirst that we have. The water that will spring unto eternal life. Living water. That's what you need. So Christ says to believe in him is to have eternal life. And this believing is the work of God alone. If we have to understand Christ, we have to understand ourselves. But we cannot understand ourselves if we don't understand Christ. The chief identifying marker of sinners is unbelief. Stop there. It's unbelief. Sin comes because of unbelief. Right from going, if you go back to the Garden of Eden. Sin comes because of unbelief. So unbelief is the chief identifying marker of all sinners. And that's why when John writes his gospel, he is always talking about believing and believing and believing. Because your connection with God, the essence of life is in faith in Christ. The essence of life is faith in Christ. So there's no greater work that a sinner could ever do than to believe in Jesus. There's no greater work that a sinner could do than to believe in Jesus. And this they only do because he gave them a new birth. A lot of people think that believing in Christ is such an easy thing. It's not easy to believe in Christ. It's the most foolish thing to do. And that's what makes it hard. Believing in Christ is not easy unless you are born again. And even as Christians, we still find ourselves with some element of unbelief. And this unbelief has to be constantly washed and cleansed by a constant hearing of the word. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You need to constantly be renewed Otherwise, you always fall back to unbelief. So the giving of eternal life to those who believe is the essence of the work of Christ. The giving of eternal life to those who believe is the essence of the work of Christ. And if we minimize the value of faith, we minimize the significance of the work and person of Jesus Christ. And that is why without faith, it is impossible, it's impossible to please God. It's impossible to please God without faith. Very, very, very important for us. Faith in Christ says, I am nothing, and I have nothing, and Jesus is everything. 
Faith alone in Christ alone is your only rope and connection to God and to life. That's your only connection. So the Lord says, on account of that, why do you seek? There's a very important question that needs to be asked in the church today even more. To everyone who professes Christ, what do you seek? Remember that that was the first recorded question that the Lord ever asked his disciples. What do you seek? What are we seeking to get from Christ? What are we seeking to get from Christ? Are we seeking to use his name to validate our own agendas? Are we seeking Christ that we may do some works for him that God may approve us? Are we seeking Christ that we may use him to oppress our women and our children in his name? The Lord would have us answer this question truthfully, otherwise Christ will profit us nothing. The Lord would have you and I know that we are the fallen. The Lord would have you and I know that we belong to darkness. And if you have to seek him, you have to seek him on these terms. You have to seek him on these terms that you are seeking light and life. Know where you are coming from before you come to him. Christ is not another tool in our chest with which to manage our lives. He is not a tool among tools in a toolbox of life. He says, I am the Lamb of God that takes away your sin and remove your cursedness. And in its place, I put my own blessedness. He says, I am the light that shines into the deep darkness of your sin. And I am the word of God. And I have spoken life and given you a new birth. You must be born again. And the Lord says, if you have to come to me, you are welcome. The Lord never turned away. And the Lord never turns away any who seek him faithfully for who he is. But he says, you have to come to me at the proper level and with proper understanding. You have to engage me at the proper level and understanding of who I am. If you seek me not for the forgiveness of sins and the removal of your blindness, you have no use for me, he says. And this is going to play out in the book of John as the hostilities just start to multiply between him and the Jews. That's just an outplay of what I'm sharing right now. You're going to see it. The Jews just starting to hate the Lord so much that they could not help but put him on the cross. Just put him away. Let's do away with him. So the Lord says, if you want to do things for me, I have no use for you. He has no use for you if you want to do things for him because he came to do things for you. He came to give his life for ransom that we may be delivered from sin and death. So do not try to give anything to Jesus before he has given you himself. Okay. But listen to verses 38 to 41. 
And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they, started, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who had John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. So the disciples asked the Lord where he was staying. And obviously when you're reading this, they did not answer the Lord's question. The Lord said, What do you seek? And they said, uh, where are you staying? <laughs> where are you staying? I'm just reminded of the Samaritan woman with the Lord at the well. When the Samaritan woman started to engage the Lord like she was going to start a debate with, with, uh, with him, when the Lord talked to her about her five husbands, uh, no, just before he talked to her about the five husbands, she, she started making some arguments, some theological arguments. Oh, you Jews say Jerusalem is the place of worship, but our fathers worshipped in this mountain. But the Lord took her down. And then she said, you have had five husbands, and the one that you have is not your husband. And then the conversation changed. The conversation changed. The Lord knows how to take you down. And here, uh, the disciples, when they came, when they were questioning the Lord, I think that they had more questions than could be answered in the time and the place where they were. So they determined, since they were disciples of John, they obviously have heard more about the Messiah from John. So they want to go and be with the Lord and learn some more about him. They've been disciples. They know something about someone who is a rabbi. But obviously they could not believe their luck that they had found the Messiah of Israel. So they wanted to inquire more about what John had taught them about the Messiah. I think that's what is happening. But Jesus' words of invitation were, come and you see. A person must first come to him then he will see. The Lord was probably saying that if you come and follow me, you shall see more of who I am. But you have to come. But you have to come. A lot of people stumble at Christ because they want to see first before they come. He says, blessed are those who believe without seeing. And some are waiting until they get better. So that they may come to him. And as we sing in the hymn, Come ye sinners. What they do not realize is that they are poor and needy. They are weak and wounded. Sick and sore. They are weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. And if they tarry, they will never come at all. If they tarry until they get better, they will never come at all. And the fitness, the hymn says, and the fitness, the only fitness that you and I require is to feel our need of him. So even today, he says, come and you see. And as long as it is 
still called today, as long as there's no casket, is come and see. And that's the message that we preach. So we're told that the two disciples remained with him that day, beginning at the 10th hour. There, there is a variation of thought as to what the 10th hour was. There are some people who say, if you go by the Jewish reckoning of time, that would have been 4 p.m. If you go by the Roman reckoning of time, that would have been 10 a.m. But the 10 a.m. reckoning of the Roman time would have been the business time, something like that. But for me, it's not very, very important whether it's 4 p.m. or 10 a.m., but I would tend to think that the fact that there was still time for them to go in there and spend the day meant probably it was still in the morning, 10 in the morning. But based on their knowledge from John the Baptist and their commitment to follow him and seeking to know more, the Lord Christ invites them to come with him. And we are told that one of the first two disciples was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And when he came to his brother, his declaration was, we have found the Messiah. It would seem that to me that Simon Peter would have knowledge of the Messiah, given that his brother was a disciple of John the Baptist. And most likely that Simon Peter also was a disciple of John the Baptist because they plied the trade of fishing together, I would presume. But Andrew goes to his brother and tells him that we have found the Messiah. So come, we have found him. Not I have found him, but we have found him. And the declaration is, we have found the Messiah. That's all. Have you found the Messiah? I have found the Messiah. I have found a Messiah. Because I need me a Messiah. I have too many issues that need a Messiah. I need a deliverer from Zion. (laughs) The Lord has to deliver you and I from our sins. So Andrew, one of the two disciples who followed Jesus, was the first proclaimer of Jesus as the Messiah. And remember, John the Baptist actually never says explicitly that Jesus is the Messiah. He just points. John is just busy dragging himself into the mud and says, I'm not even worthy to untie the sandal of his shoes. He is preferred than me because he existed before me. So John doesn't even venture to say he's the Messiah. He just says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But Andrew is the first one to proclaim that we have found the Messiah. And the two other instances where we find Andrew in the book of John, he is doing the same thing. In John 6, 4-9 and John 12, 20-22, he was bringing someone to Christ. Those are the three instances. He was, in those three instances, bringing someone to Jesus Christ. But then he says, we have found the Messiah. The Messiah in Hebrew means the anointed one, which in the Greek is the Christ. It translates as the Christ. 
But what is the idea of the anointed one? It's coming from the anointing of the kings and the priests as they were getting ready for their office. But this was only, the anointing was only symbolic of the anointing by the Holy Spirit. And it pointed to the coming of the future king. If it was the anointing of the king, it was pointing to the coming of the future king. And if it was the high priest, it was pointing to the coming of the high priest. In Isaiah 61, 1, this is what it says of Christ. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. And as time progressed, the understanding of the Jews and the expectations was that the Messiah would be one who comes as a descendant of Abraham and a descendant of David. A descendant of Abraham and a descendant of David. And we're going to hear that in Matthew 1, one, as Matthew has his genealogy, he goes to descendant of Abraham and descendant of David. But we also hear of the coming one, the king, from Second Samuel 7, verses 11 to 13. This is God's covenant with David. This is what the Lord says. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. This is the Lord God speaking to David. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So all these expectations were loaded in the title of the Messiah. And the interesting thing is when they came to the Lord and said, the king of Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ did not say, oh, no, I'm not the king of Israel. But he never used it himself, though. He knew he was the king of Israel, but the term king of Israel had a lot of freight. Mostly the freight was political expectations. And the Lord was not in that business just yet. He's coming, though. He's coming back, and he's going to subdue all the nations. Okay. So he says in John 42, going back to our text, John 1, 42 to 44, he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, you are Simon the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. Jesus renames the name of Simon. To Cephas. As I said earlier, to name or rename someone is a power of authority. You would not just want anybody to come and name your kid. <laughs> Only the parents have the foremost right to name their children. The parents have the right, even if someone were to come and suggest a very good name, still it has to pass through the parents. They have to approve. So when the Lord comes and he renames someone, that is saying a whole lot of things. 
He's saying he has the power to rename, but not only that, there's a relationship there that exists. There's an intimate relationship that Christ has with Peter that Peter is not aware of that allows the Lord to come and say, guess what, I'm going to rename you. And, and it doesn't end there. We too have been renamed by the Lord because we used to bear the name of darkness dwellers. We have been renamed to be called the children of light, the children of God. Roman Catholics go to this and the other texts in Matthew 16, 18 to say, well, Peter is the rock of the church. And because he's the rock of the church, the only true church is the Roman Catholic. That Peter is the foundation and pillar of the church. And if you're not a Roman Catholic, you are lost. You are a prodigal son or child. And the Roman Catholics believe that all Protestants at one time are going to come back to the mother church, to the mothership. They sincerely believe that because of their misunderstanding of what the Lord was saying and also of their misunderstanding of who Christ is. When the Lord said, I said to you in Matthew 16, 18, that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He was not saying Peter is the foundation of the church. The Lord was saying Peter was going to be instrumental, an instrumental leader in the establishment of the church of God. And we see him as the main preacher on the day of Pentecost. But he could not be the rock that forms the foundation of the church because Jesus is the rock of the church. He is the sure foundation of the church. And in the Old Testament, the rock was associated with God. First Samuel 2 verse 2. No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. In Habakkuk 1.12, he says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God and my Holy One? We will not die. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge, and you, O Rock, have established them to correct. So, according to the understanding of the Old Testament, God is the Rock. And Christ is very aware of that when he makes that statement. So the apostles did not build the church on their own rocks, but on the foundation that is Jesus Christ. Listen to Ephesians 2, 19 to 20. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. If we had stopped there, then we could argue that. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The cornerstone is the stone that holds the whole foundation and structure together. And so Peter could not have been that rock. The foundation of the apostles and prophets was talking to their teaching. 
and not their work of salvation. Let's make the distinction. It was talking to their teaching and not the work of salvation. The prophets prophesied of the coming of the Messiah and the apostles were taught by the Lord and were given the theological interpretation of the person and work of Christ. It's when you read the New Testament, the writings of the apostles, that you start to realize that, oh, by the way, God is Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Oh, by the way, Christ is both God and man. And for what reason? That he may die and remove sin. All these things are coming from their teaching, but it's the Lord who is giving theological interpretation of those things. And this is the foundation that is being talked about. It's the foundation of the teaching that the Lord gave to the apostles and the prophets. The church of God is built only on the work of Jesus. He is the rock. He is God. So the church is not built on the Roman Catholic as they believe, but on Christ alone. Verse 43. The next day he purposed to go into Galilee and he found Philip and Jesus said to him, follow me. Jesus said, follow me. There are two simple words there. Follow me. (laughs) Follow is a command. And then me is the object of the following. Who are you following? Jesus says, don't follow the apostles. Don't follow any man. Follow me. And that's not a suggestion either. It's a command. You follow me. End of story. So what is to believe in Christ is to follow him. That's all there is to it. So We advance the teaching. This is very important. By the way, I use very important a lot. (laughs) Because everything that is about Christ is very important. But as a preacher, you have to think about these things. Because you can look at the text and not want to see Christ in it. But if you ask God to show you Christ, you always... See Christ. You always make more of the things of Christ. So we as preachers have to advance the teaching and understanding that says, follow him. We can't say enough of this because if if you look at the church world, it's about men creating a following after themselves. It's not about Christ. They, they, they may have the name church somewhere in their bulletin, but there's nothing about Christ that you hear from their pulpits. They may open the Bible if they do. Some don't even open the Bible. They just raise it. We shall, say, we shall not say their names. But the idea of teaching the gospel is so that you may follow him. We can't say that enough. The church needs to be reminded that this business is about Christ and not ourselves. So the Lord says the business of true religion is to follow him. In verse 45 to 51, 
we are told that Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Philip comes after having been asked by the Lord to follow him. And he makes the declaration, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. What did the prophets write about Jesus? Is the whole Old Testament. (laughs) Is the whole Old Testament. We're not going to read the whole Old Testament. But we're just going to get two passages from the Old Testament. uh, Which I think uh, are very important to just illustrate what these guys may have been thinking, the kind of scriptures that they may have been thinking. The one that comes to mind to me is Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 to 19. Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 19. And this is what he says. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your countrymen, you shall listen to him. This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on, that, on the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore, or I will die. The Lord said to me, They have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that who... Ever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. In Micah 5, verse 2, this is what he says. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. So, based on that, this is the understanding that the Jewish people have of the Messiah. But Nathaniel comes and says to Philip, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Nathaniel is skeptical and surely does not associate or conceive of the Messiah is coming from such a lowly place, such a poor place as Nazareth. Yes, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but he at one time lived in Nazareth as a fulfillment of prophecy according to Matthew 2, verses 19 to 23. So there's a prophet that was to come from Nazareth. There was a prophet that was to come from Nazareth. And a lot of people may find it difficult to find the actual prophecy. But it's there. It's implied in Judges 13.5. In Judges 13.5. It says in Judges 13.5, For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. So, the movement of the Lord to get to Nazareth, just the way that it happened, it was happening 
because Herod was killing the boys, the young boys, those who were two years and under. And the Lord so arranged that the Lord Jesus Christ would move to Nazareth. And then at the end of the chapter, it says this was to fulfill prophecy. I'm like, fulfilling prophecy? These people are getting killed. But it was necessary for what happened to happen so that the Lord would go and live in Nazareth just for that time. Just amazing the sovereignty of God. But being Nazareth and not having any kind of reputation and not having much written about it and the coming of any prophet of any kind of stature, Nathaniel and anybody had to have the prejudice. And this is the kind of prejudice that a lot of people, even in our time, would have of a bad neighborhood, a city, or a country. But even so, the Lord is still doing those kind of things. The Lord is still doing those kind of things. He still is making wise the foolish things. He's still making strong the weak things. And the things that are nothing, he makes them into something. And we say God is in the, in, in the business of raising unlikely vessels to carry his message. And a lot of people stumble at the vessel and then at Christ. At the conference, Elder Spots always says, do not worry about the clothes that the driver is wearing. Just eat the bread. Just eat the bread. Don't worry even about the truck. As long as the truck has brought the food, just buy the bread and eat it. So even then, a lot of people will stumble at Christ just because, oh, uh, this guy who's talking... Uh, it's different. I don't think, oh, he didn't go to seminary. Oh, uh, the Lord doesn't care about that. What he cares about is that he has given you his message to preach. And if he has given you a message to preach, he will give you what you need to preach Christ. So Philip does not deal with the prejudice that Nathaniel had about Jesus, but he just brought, to him, brought him to Christ. He didn't argue with him. He did not put a, an apologetics defense. He just said, come see. And when Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him, he said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. I've read a lot of people say a lot of things about that statement. There are two ways to look at it. A lot of people look at the positive side of it. There's a positive and a negative aspect to that statement. The positive aspect is that Nathaniel may actually have been a very sincere, nice guy. He may have been a guy who actually applied himself to want to know more about the Christ. That he was that sincere. But I'm not really sold on that. I'm not sold on that for these reasons. We have to remember who Israel was. Israel were the descendants of Jacob. 
the heel catcher, whom the pre-incarnate Christ had changed the name from Jacob to Israel in Genesis 32. Jacob means one who deceives. The transplanter, according to the story that we all know of, of the blessing of Esau that went to Jacob because he transplanted. And this story is in Genesis 27, 34 to 36. Jacob came and he cheated his brother out of the birthright blessing. He deceitfully took the blessing away from his brother and he supplanted him two times. So when the Lord Jesus Christ comes and says, Behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit, he is demonstrating a lot of things there. He is demonstrating that he knew what Nathaniel said under the fig tree. He knows what Nathaniel has said about Christ because when Nathaniel comes and says, what good thing comes out of Nazareth? That's not a positive statement. So the Lord in response says, Behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. I know what you said, you descendant of Jacob. You are a deceiver just like your father Jacob. Your heart is full of deceit. And just as you said, there's no good thing to come out of Nazareth. There's no good thing to come out of your heart. For there are no descendants of Jacob who are not deceivers. You get that? There are no descendants of Jacob who are not deceivers. Remember, Israel is not yet born again. The name has just been changed from Jacob to Israel, but as far as their hearts, they still have the hearts of Jacob. So you, Nathaniel, you are a deceiver too, but on, my, on the encounter with me, I will make you a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Because I am he who wrestled with your father Jacob and changed him and made him to be an upright man. So Christ is the one who struggled. He is the angel of the Lord who struggled with Jacob and changed his name. So the Lord is saying, you are going to struggle with me and I am going to change you. So Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. So Nathaniel comes before the Lord with his skeptic attitude, thinking that he was coming to discover Jesus. Nathaniel comes thinking that he is discovering Jesus. But the Lord does not give him that opportunity. Rather, he demonstrates his power of omniscience and omnipresence and makes a discovery of him instead. He tells Nathaniel that he saw him from a distance that is impossible for anyone to recognize a person, especially of one that you have never seen before. 
So the Lord says, I saw you standing or resting under a fig tree. And by the way, the fig trees could grow as big as 50 feet and with very large leaves and was used as a place for meditation or prayer or to seek shelter from the heat of the sun. By this we know that the Lord not only sees from a distance, but that he also knows and sees the deceitfulness that is in men's hearts. In John 2, 24 to 25, which is in keeping with what I just said. This is John, but John could not tell us this if he did not intend for us to get some more understanding. Because immediately in the following chapter, chapter 2, 24 to 25, John says of Jesus, But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of men, for he knew what was in men. So by the power of the testimony of Jesus, Nathaniel is humbled right away, and he is forced to make a confession of Christ. So he says, Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. Nathaniel is blown away. He is blown away to the point that he now loves Christ with more titles than just rabbi. <laughs> he says, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And this is more than what anybody ever said of a rabbi. Okay? This is more than anybody would ever say of a rabbi. And remember what happened to Nicodemus. Nicodemus got in trouble, in my opinion, because he did not recognize who Christ was. We know you are a teacher from heaven because no one can do the things that you do unless God was with him. And that seems to be a very clean, innocent statement. But not according to the Lord. The Lord was so offended by it that one of the longest discussions from the Lord happened in that chapter, in the book of John. He begins to lecture Nicodemus and says, Nicodemus, it's not enough to just see me as a teacher. I am more than a teacher. And you can't make an evaluation of me. You have no ability to make a proper evaluation of me unless God gives you the ability to. So when Nathaniel comes, he makes that confession that is accurate in keeping with the person of Jesus Christ. So Nathaniel goes beyond what a disciple would say of their rabbi and he spoke more than he understood and as I said earlier, Jesus did not d deny the titles. He did not deny the titles. And he says to him, because in verse 50, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than this. And you see we are on verse 50, which means we have one more verse. Which means we are getting close. Jesus says to Nathaniel, if you believe that I am he, based just on the very few things that I told you, then you shall surely see greater things than these. You shall see great many miracles, 
that I'm going to perform. And what is important here is that Nathaniel believed. Listen to what Jesus said. Because you have believed. So the issue of faith is just too critical. And, and it plays as John is concluding this chapter. He is developing the concept and he's repeating. As a preacher, one of the problems, if that's a problem, is that we repeat things. Why? Because it's important for you to believe. God would have you understand that you have to believe in what he has said about his own son. So even us, if we have to see greater things than these, we have to believe. And in verse 51, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And that will be our last verse. What is the Lord Jesus Christ talking about? He is talking about Genesis 28. Genesis 28, verses 10 to 13. We have to read those. That's very important because the Lord is going to say it again, a similar statement in John 3 when he talks to Nicodemus. Genesis 28, verses 10 to 13, this is what he says. Then Jacob departed from Beersheba and went toward Haran. He came to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set, and he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and lay down in that place. He had a dream, and behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Now, this is what we have to see. Jacob saw a ladder in his dream. In which a ladder was set on earth and with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. But even more, he also saw God at the end of the ladder. And to this, the Lord says to Nathaniel, this is, statement is also one of the reasons why I'm convinced that the statement by the Lord of Nathaniel, a, a, a true Israelite indeed in whom there's no deceit. He was developing Jacob. I think he was trying to connect Jacob to this very last statement. He is bringing his mind back to the story of Jacob and what happened to Jacob. Just get Jacob back in the picture so that he can make this statement. So he says, and to this the Lord says to Nathaniel, Truly, truly, I speak as God, not as a prophet. Because the prophet would say, that says the Lord. Or the prophets say, that says the Lord. Jesus says, truly, truly, that formula is the formula of God. He says, truly, truly, you see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending. Not on the ladder that Jacob saw, but on me, the son of man. A ladder is a tool for reaching unreachable heights. Mm -hmm. 
And so Jesus says, I am the ladder that God set on earth and I reach heaven. This is how much I am stretched between the earth and the heavens. Because I am God. I am your way to God. And I am the one that Jacob saw at the end of the ladder. I am the divine communication from heaven to earth because left to yourself, heaven will remain unreachable. So the Son of Man has to come as it were and stretch heaven and earth that they may be reachable. And this speaks also to the idea that Apostle John has written in John 1.14 of the word tabernacling with us. The word became flesh. So the coming of God from heaven and coming to earth is the stretching of the heavens and the earth and bringing them together. And the Lord will say in John 3.13, he continues on this concept. He says, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the son of man who is in heaven. The son of man is in heaven, but the son of man is on earth. Because he has strayed heaven and earth and brought them together. So instead of the angels ascending and descending, Jesus himself is the ladder and it is he who came down from heaven. And it is he and not the angels who ascended to heaven to appear before God on our behalf. So Daniel would say in Daniel 7, 13, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and kingdom, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So all this is loaded with the Son of Man coming from heaven and stretching the heavens that they may reach the earth. It's the stretching of the heavens that they may reach the earth. <laughs> oh, the Lord is good. So, in closing, in this chapter, there are just so many titles that we have learned about Jesus. Just in the chapter of John, the first chapter, there are just so many titles that we've been told about Jesus. And they all relate to his work of salvation. And John wants us to, to understand that if we have to read the rest of the account, we will not understand it if we forget those things. So Jesus comes, and he is more than a prophet. He is more than Elijah. He comes first and foremost as the Logos of God. And because he is the Logos of God, who is God? He is the light. And the word light is force, 
It's a light that cannot be put out. It's a light that you can put in water. It cannot be put out. You can't blow it with your mouth. It can't be put out. So the light of Christ is the light of God. And he is the life. He is the son of God. He is the Messiah. The king of Israel. And rabbi. All that in one chapter. And if we have to understand the work of salvation. We have to understand all these things. And how God requires them. If the work has to save anybody. And if you seek him, he says, if you seek me, yes, follow me. And he says, come and you see. And this is our witness. And I believe that that will be your witness. Is behold the Lamb of God. Behold him, the Lamb of God. Who takes away the sin of the world. Go to Christ this morning. Follow Christ. And hear what he has to tell you. And even though you may be a skeptic. Like Nathaniel. He says I saw you. When you were hiding under the fig tree. Of your own self-righteousness. He says. Do not seek shelter. From the fig tree. But come to him. Who forgives sins completely. And covers all your unrighteousness. With his own righteousness. Let's go before him in prayer. Heavenly Father Lord. We thank you. We thank you for. Your son. The Logos, the light, the life, the Lamb, the Messiah, who is King of Israel, who is the Son of God, who has tabernacled among us, who has stretched the heavens that they may reach the earth, who has stretched the earth that it may reach the heavens, that we too who were darkness dwellers, would be able to go up the ladder, go up the ladder by faith and go to heaven and see him who is our Lord and see the glory that he had with you before the foundation of the world. Lord, our call and your call as you have given us is follow me. Come, and you see. And we come, Lord, we come by faith. Even though our vision may be weak, our vision may be poor, maybe our faith is wavering because of the many things that weigh us as sinners, the needs that we have of this life. Lord, they work against us. But we know that the ladder has been stretched. The ladder has been stretched. And we have found a way to heaven. 
the Son of God himself has entered into the heavenly place that he may appear before you on our behalf, that we also may appear before you without fear and in peace. Lord, we bless your people this morning uh, for what you have done for them through your word. And if they would remember one or two things, let them remember that it's all about Christ. It's all about pointing people to Christ. It's all about believing in him whom you sent. Lord, we pray and thank you for the two men family and safely bringing them here. Uh, Lord, and just showing yourself again to be faithful. Uh, just reviving our spirits by their presence. And Lord, we now ask your blessing upon Fanny and Brother Tillman, that you may give them the light of Christ, that they may walk whilst it's still light, that they may profess Christ and teach even the people that you have given, the children that you have given under their care, uh, in the place that they worship, asking for your blessing upon their two girls. Uh, Lord, as they grow, Lord, may you keep your hand upon them uh, and keep them from stumbling. For your scripture says, him who is able to keep us from stumbling. May you put your hand upon them and your blessing, even though they may not know many things. Lord, this world is dying and there's not hope for them. Lord, grow them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. I pray and thank you. May you hear us for the sake of Christ. In his precious name we pray. Amen.